All right, well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, we uh, plan to get back into this book. Does anyone remember this book from over a year ago, last time we were really in it, I think? Uh, we started the Bible Doctrine book by Grudem, which is a condensed version of his big systematic theology, and we started walking through it pretty much a chapter at a time, uh, right before COVID struck, and then once that happened, uh, we, we had to abandon this for, for a year, and now we are about to move back in. But before we jump back into this, uh, we uh, had wondered if there were any questions based on some of the teachings the last few Sundays uh, in Sunday school on gender and all that's wrapped up in that, and uh, I'm sure there are questions, but we have a few here. And uh, the first question we got, we will actually not address today. It was about LGBT-related issues. And so that will be on Thursday nights when we start that at the end of May. That will be uh, the, f the first few weeks we'll be dealing with uh, some of the so critical social justice stuff and uh, the sexual revolution. So we will postpone that question for, for the Thursday nights coming up uh, in June and the end of May. And so I think we can just go ahead and jump in with, well, maybe we should pray. Let's do it. Can you pray for us, Jerry? Yes, sir. <clears throat> Father, I would love you, and we want to love you more, and we pray that today you would use uh, this study. Thank you for your word. Your word has given us all we need for life and godliness. It pierces right uh, to our innermost being, and, uh, and we're very grateful. We're grateful that it never returns void, and we're grateful that um, you bring faith um, through it. You have, Lord Jesus prayed that you would... Uh, sanctify us by truth, and your word is truth. So today we pray that we would be further sanctified by uh, this, um, the fascinating study of um, all, all these questions, but then also on sin, that we would understand the doctrine of sin in a greater way that would um, uh, spur our sanctification. So we commit this time to you and are so grateful for um, the, just the enormous privilege um, to study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So just starting with the next question, <clears throat> this was something that was, I was really asked on the phone by a member a few weeks ago, and I thought this would be a good time to talk about it. Uh, how can headship and submission, speaking specifically of, of headship for the husband, how can headship not become a cover for a man's selfishness in the marriage? I think that's a great question. So we, we have these very clear roles of husbands leading in the home and in the marriage, and the wife is called to joyfully support and submit to the husband's vision for the family and, and, and leadership. That could become a cloak for selfishness, a cloak for the flesh, for the husband to, to abuse that position. What, what would be uh, some examples of, of, of that, or what would be some ways we could deal with, with that kind of a abuse? You know, one of the things that you said a couple weeks ago, I think it was, that uh, in um, Ephesians uh, 5.33, that however let each one of you love his wife as himself and let his wife see that she respects her husband, that that undid the curse of Genesis 3. And so I think as in, the, in a man's headship role, uh, it, it, along with that comes submission as our Lord demonstrated. And so um, that doesn't really answer the question, but if, if, if it's not done in submission, then it won't work. I would think too, um, can y'all hear me okay? Okay. Um, I asked him to turn this down because I tend to be loud when I talk. I don't realize how loud I am. Um, so if somebody who's quieter than me uses this, they have it turned up. And so when I use it, it's like I'm yelling at you and I don't want that. Um, so thank you, Sean, for that. Appreciate it. Um, 
So I, th- I think uh, we need, husbands need to keep Christ in view. And I know that that seems like cliche to even say that. Well, that's what we're supposed to say. Uh, but the, the verse that came along with the question was Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28. I'll give you guys a second to turn there. Um, and the reason I'm bringing this up is if we're, if we're going to, if men are going to love their wives well um, and lead the way God would have, then we really, de- really do need to understand what leadership means, what it looks like according to Scripture, especially if we're going to be like Christ. What is, how did Christ lead? What did Christ have to say about leadership? Um, and so it's interesting here in Matthew uh, 20, verses 20, starting in verse 25, he says, But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And so he's basically saying this is how they do it in the world. You look out in the world around us, this is how leaders do it. They're, they're in charge. They're, you know, they're taking charge. They're telling people what to do. Everybody knows who the top dog is. Everybody you know, marches to the beat of their drum. Um, and they can be harsh. They can be um, cruel even at times. But Jesus says in verse 26, It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And what he's doing there is he's saying, listen, you, even if you're in a leadership position, you cannot think of yourself as better than the person you lead. <clears throat> Men should not think of themselves as somehow better than their wives. Like, I'm more spiritual because I'm the man, therefore, you know, I've got a better status or this, that. Jesus is like, that is not how you view this. If you start with that, you're already starting wrong. He goes on to say, um, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Uh, meaning, I am here, this, this person needs to see themselves, uh, the man needs to see himself as a servant to his wife and his family. Meaning, I am here to do whatever I can to help you walk with God and help you flourish in the life God has for you. Whatever that means, however you define that, uh, other places in Scripture talk about that in terms of you know, God's call on the wife. But the, the husband should see himself um, primarily in, from this text, I'm here to do everything I can to help my wife follow Christ as best as she can. He says, And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so he's completely inverting the, the paradigm that people are used to. If you're, in, if you're the leader, you're the one in charge, you've got all the authority, everyone does what you say. And it's not to say that husbands don't lead and that wives shouldn't follow. It's not saying that. But it's like as far as the husband is concerned, I'm not here as a, as a husband to tell my wife what she needs to be doing every day. Like I'm here to serve her and encourage her to follow Christ. And if I'm doing that, then the flip side in terms of her submission will come a lot easier for her if I'm trying to look at Jesus and say, this is what I'm going to do. And similarly with, with that, any wife and mother, it's a very different kind of relationship. They're not one-to-one at all. But any wife and mother has authority over her children. And that authority, you could say the same thing there. That authority is meant to be used for the good of the child, not meant to be exploited for the, for the selfish well-being of the mother. You know what I'm saying? So it, it, not the same kind of relationship, mother-child, husband-wife, very different. But there's still that idea of authority means use your authority for the good of those around you. Uh, a good coach on a team is going to use his position of influence and authority to better the whole team, not to selfishly benefit himself or whatever. So it, it's always about using authority for the good of those around you. And you don't have to turn to this verse, but Colossians 3, verses 18 and 19, 
Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So again, he he knows that there's going to be a tendency to misuse that position. He says, don't you dare. Don't you dare be harsh with your wife or exploit your wife or use your wife in some way. No, instead, serve her, love her, lay down your life for her, modeling Christ's way of interacting with his bride, uh, the church. And don't you think we should be the chief, men should be the chief repenters in the the home. We should be the first to admit our faults, which are many, and, uh, and confess that sin and, and be uh, at the top of that. And I think that will lead um, the, the wives and the children to, to want to do that as well. I heard a, a young man at school say he was probably a junior or senior. I love this, what he said. He said, my dad does every, everything he does is for my mom and us. Everything he does is for my mom and us. I thought, wow, what a great testimony of, you know, a dad that really invested well. And, and you can think of him, of his five brothers and, uh, or th- uh, five kids and his wife, and he has. He's just served them and uh, relentlessly. And, uh, and his son saw that even as a, a junior in high school. It was beautiful. Could we say, too, thinking about the selfishness part, I want to make sure we address that. You know, the problem I think we get into, and I mean, this goes both ways in, in, in marriage. Husbands and wives both have to be careful of this. And in other relationships, too, parents and kids. I think one of the reasons we get angry and irritated so often is because we expect other people to do everything we want them to do. And when they don't do exactly what we expect, the way we expect it, when we expect it, we get irritated and we get annoyed. Um, and it's like, you're here to do for me. I'm not here to do for you. And that's the selfish attitude, which is the exact opposite of what you were sharing, which is so great. It's like they see you know, the dad's like, I'm doing this for you. I'm not, I'm not looking at you and demanding that you do anything for me. And I think that's the thing we have to be careful when it comes to these, these, these roles that scripture prescribes for us. Like the, it's not the husband's calling to take Ephesians five when it talks to the wife and say, okay, wife, I'm going to beat you over the head with this because this is what you need to do. It's like, no, you trust God will use that in her life to help her be what she needs to be. But we look at the text and we say, okay, no, this is what I need to do. We don't look at the other person and say, this is what you need to do. We say, this is what I need to do. And when we focus like that, it takes the focus, honestly. We're focusing on ourselves in order to not focus on ourselves. Because if we say, this is how I need to live, this is how I need to treat my spouse, how I need to treat my kids, guess what? I'm going to be more focused on being the type of person God calls me to be and not constantly worrying about, are they being exactly what I think they should be? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the wrong way to look at it. So. Well, j- just the next question goes right along with this. Uh, how can we help our spouses grow spiritually and better fulfill their role in the marriage? How can we help our spouses grow spiritually and better fulfill their role in the marriage? I mean, just with what Greg's saying, I think the first thing we can do is try to be a better husband or wife ourselves. <laughs> so, I, mean, I think the first way to help is to be a more consistent, like you said, repenter, uh, lover of the other one, forgiver, reconciler, to, to be more consistent in my own walk, my own uh, walk with the Lord. I think that's the biggest first step in that way, because the worst is a spouse who's not, you know, it's the log in your eye, or no, the log in my eye and the speck mm-hmm. in your eye, and I'm talking about what's wrong with you. It's like, well, have I dealt with my own sin first? before I'm confronting the other. So I think that's a big first step, but that's not probably all there is to say. Yeah, no, I remember uh, 20, uh, 30 years ago, we were, uh, had a five-month stint at John MacArthur's church in California, and uh, in Sunday school, the, um, they, they taught th- this kind of stuff. Um, uh, girls, they, it was college, say school at this point, and they were girls that should submit to their husbands. And, uh, and it was you know, it was alarming. It was so good. And it was so, but it was very, you know, countercultural even back in 1990. And then the next Sunday, he just let the guys have it. 
No, it wasn't MacArthur. It was the guy that was uh, teaching the Sunday school and just said, hey, the, the girls can't do, the women can't do what they're supposed to do unless you're doing it right. Unless you're leading well, unless you're growing, unless you're being sanctified. So, Mark, I think exactly what you said is right. 80% of helping our, our wives or our husbands has to be by doing our role better. I, I, I just think that's the, the majority of it and not focusing so much on their sin, but more on my own. A word that jumped out at me this out, out at me this morning was harshness. You read it from that Colossians passage, but I think about Proverbs fifteen one: a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And I thought about all these questions as husbands relate to wives, or wives to husbands, or husband, fathers to children. Harshness has no place. Yeah, I mean, I raised girls, and I learned. I learned the hard way. Uh, girls will just cry, and 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 you know I was a I was probably I had to learn to be a softer disciplinarian, uh, but that was a long time ago. We won't ask how long. For... <laughs> Last century. <laughs> <laughs> no, but Papa, you're saying that the fruit of the spirit, right? Those are the things that we need to absolutely to model to to our our wives and our kids. And, uh, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Well, ju just the, the next question going right along with this uh, one we just heard. Uh, when and how should husbands or wives confront sins in their spouses? And just maybe as I know we're giving a lot of warnings before that because I think our flesh is going to like to do a lot of that mm -hmm. and not want to do as much work on my own heart. And so I, I just want to say for every time you, you, you see a sin in your spouse, which you will, just like if you have roommates or you have brothers or sisters or whatever, you're always going to see the sins in the people you live around very clearly, and it's hard to see our own. I would say, you know, uh, the vast majority of the times we need to hesitate before trying to confront their sin and work on our own. And, and I think that's going to be the biggest, biggest part. And then over time, there will be times where you need to bring up an issue with your spouse or a roommate or someone, and in the most gracious, humble way, if there's been a persistent habit that is sinful, that is very clear and prominent. It's not just a one-time, you know, this is, we've got to be careful. If someone has a bad day and they complain, we don't have to take them, you know, and, and confront them every time we see a sin. That's just going to create a hostile environment that's not going to feel gracious or loving. But it's, it's a persistent habitual sin that you see prominently that your friend or spouse roommate doesn't seem to see. There will come a time at a point, if we truly love them, that we will find in a private setting, in a gracious way, confessing our sin as we do it and talking about the gospel as we do it and encouraging them with how we see. Like, I would say, pour, you know, the pill goes down with the applesauce, you know, <laughs> you the bitter pill and you put the applesauce around it or whatever it may be, the yogurt that you do would just swallow it. Well, I mean, you want to surround it like Paul does in 1 Corinthians. How does he... See? Does Paul have things to confront the Corinthians about? Oh, yes. Drunk on communion wine, we won't even list the other things. I mean, when you're drunk on communion wine, that just tells you we're not in a good place as a church when that's happening. So Paul is going to, he's going to lay it out. I mean, they need to be confronted. Paul would be failing to love them if he didn't confront them, which he does throughout the letter. But how does he start? I thank God for the grace of God at work in your life. Hmm. The first paragraph of 1 Corinthians, the first big paragraph, he praises the grace of God in their midst and says, I know God is faithful that he will carry this work to completion. Now, why are one of you boasting in Paul, one of you in Peter, one of you in, you know, this or that, Apollos? Don't be divided. Be united in Christ. But Paul starts, so we, we need to have words of encouragement. It, in my limited experience, what tends to happen with any relationship is we wait until we hit a moment of anger, and then the correction comes out of our mouth. 
That is never the right way to do it. And I've done it, but that is never the right. So you, you, you've been thinking about it for six months, but then there's this moment of, con- you just get mad and then you say the sharp word right there and it's meant to hurt, it's not meant to help. People say, you know, it's the difference between a slayer holding a knife and a surgeon holding a scalpel. Th- th- those words that cut are good and loving if they're held by the right hands. But if they're coming in a moment of anger or wrath, that's not the time to bring those sharp words down. So I would say if, if there's anger, this is not the time. Wait until there's a calm moment, a, a, a good moment, pour on encouragement that's genuine, preach the gospel of forgiveness, but then say, there's one concern I have, and I, I'm not saying this because I'm better than you, I've got my sins, we talked about them, but here's an issue that I want you to consider, is, is the Lord being honored in this spot here in, in, in your life? And that might be a way to approach it. I think a key too is, uh, someone has said, it's good to talk to man about God. We know that that's good, but it's better yet to talk to God about man. Wow. And so I have failed so many times to just pray, to pray for Amy, to pray for Ben and Megs. Um, and, and I think that the Lord will take care of those things when we pray. He loves them more than we do. He wants their sanctification. He will iron those things out oftentimes without us intervening or meddling. He'll take care of it. I think when we pray more, um, and I, I've seen that uh, in my experience. I heard Don Carson said about his father, Tom Carson, who was an unknown pastor, you know, he wrote that book about him, Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor, which is just a great book. And uh, Tom Carson, Don just said of his dad, I think it was near the end of the book, it may sound corny, but I just thought this line was great. He said, my father was not good at putting people down except on his prayer list. I just, I thought that was, that is a great statement because he said, he said he was greatly wronged. His father, Tom, was greatly wronged in French-speaking Canada by a well-known, very popular celebrity pastor in Canada. He was hurt pretty intensely by this man with some ego issues. And uh, Don Carson said he didn't find out about it from his parents. He found out about it a decade later in Bible college when they told the history of Quebec and what was happening. And his own dad came up in the history class. And Don said, I was the most surprised person in the room. I found out my dad had been wronged. And so he took, he went home over the break and said, dad, uh, we've been learning about French, you know, history here. And and he said, well, what have you been learning? He said, well, your name came up. And and Tom Carson said, what did they say? And he said, well, this guy, so-and-so did this and this, and you'd responded this way. Is that true? He said, pretty much. (laughs) So Don found out only through another professor uh, in class, his parents didn't even mention how they'd been wrong. And so, I mean, that's the godly way to do it. Not to be gossips who just kind of relay all that's wrong and, and kind of mumble and mumble as we all can have a tendency at times to to do. I'll also say don't let things fester. I mean, we, we talked about six months later, like that's probably not a good yes. idea to let it go that long in any relationship. Um, the longer you sit on it, the, the more likely you are to nurture any bitterness, any anger, any ill thoughts like they creep in. And the longer you sit on it, the more you start to justify, yeah, I'm right. Look how terrible this person is. And then one day when it comes out, it's ugly. Um, and that goes both ways. Um, and so don't nurture it. Like if you start to see a pattern, say something. Um, say something to your spouse. Say something to your friend, to your roommate, whatever. Don't let things fester and build um, because when they come, it's, like, you know, it's, it's a gross kind of thing where you've got a sore that builds and builds and when it breaks, it's disgusting. But that's what happens. We let things build and then when time comes and we can't hold it in anymore, it turns into something that it never should have been. 
Um, if you see a pattern, you know, like Mark said, once or twice, uh, people have bad days. If you start to see a pattern, say, hey, you know, I just, I'm not trying to argue, I'm not trying to, like, you know, tear you down, but I've noticed how you've responded a few times in this way. It doesn't seem healthy, it doesn't seem, you know, biblical or godly, you know, what's going on. Just say it early. Say it early, and you can head off a lot of, um, just a lot of grief and a lot of unnecessary arguments and uh, words that you you would you you'll say things that you've if you've nurtured bitterness that you would not say had you started earlier. Mm-hmm. So start early as much as possible. You mentioned uh, not letting things fester. I don't know if any of you have read a little book called The One Minute Manager. Uh, it's an old book, read it last century, but um, actually it's ideal. It, it's not very long, but it basically says if you're a manager you uh, and someone is doing something good, you don't go back to the office and write it down. You just say, hey, Mark, great job today. Um, Or if someone, like you say, is, I've noticed that type thing. You don't throw them under the bus. You don't shame them, but you give them some immediate feedback. Uh, Not disciplinarian, uh, uh, in a disciplinarian manner, but you let them know that you see that. Yes, normally speaking, in, in Christian friendships, there should be far more words of encouragement than words of criticism. Yes. Just generally speaking. So it, it, it's an unhealthy relationship if, if half the conversations are about you critiquing their sin. I mean, that's just something that's very unhealthy in, in the individual doing that. So it should be at least nine times out of ten, if not way more than that, where you're saying you're, you're complimenting and encouraging the work of God in their life. And you're saying, man, I love the way that you handled that difficult phone call without complaining, without gossiping about it. Like, that was really or the, the way you did this or that. And it, just encouragement should be the primary language we speak. Uh, when, when, we're, when we're interacting. And then occasionally there are times where confrontation must happen, and that is the loving and hard thing at times to do. I, I personally never really enjoy those conversations, uh, not just when I receive, but when I have to give them. It's just as hard, if not harder, to give those conversations out of love. I think a big thing, too, is a lot of what I learned, I learned from ninth graders in Romans class. <laughs> and uh, the other day in a presentation, one kid said, let's not be annoying or easily annoyed. And I think that'd be pretty good. If we just did that, if we're not so easily annoyed, that takes care of a lot of problems and then nothing festers because nothing's really, you know, don't worry about what people say, right? Ecclesiastes, don't worry about what someone else says about you. You know that you've thought that about them in their heart anyway, in your heart. So don't don't get so easily annoyed about stuff and and then just don't be annoying and that'd take care of about (laughs) 85% of it. (laughs) Next question. How should we think about family worship? Is it important? How should it be done? Can, can I start on this? If you wouldn't mind turning to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm just going to read an extended little bit here, and then we can talk a little bit more about this. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey." Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. 
and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Look at verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers." So you can see here in this passage, Old Testament, and we can clearly see connections to New Testament here, that not only are the parents called to know the Lord's salvation and to know His redemption, which at that time was the Exodus, and us it's the new Exodus in Jesus, but they look back at the Exodus and the Passover and God's deliverance through the blood of the Lamb, and they say, God brought us out, God saved us, God cleansed us, God restored us, God judged our enemies, and they say, make sure that you talk about these things as just a part of your life. In the same way that a diehard you know, Georgia football fan is going to talk about Georgia football throughout the football season, it's inevitable. You can't stop a Georgia fan from talking about Georgia football. It can't happen. Uh, same thing with baseball or basketball or whatever. You, when the season is going, you're going to watch the games as much as you can. You're going to look stuff up online about the players, and you're going to talk about it with your friends because that's what you're about, and that's, that's totally fine. But with the things of the Lord, they need to be at least that important to us, if not far more, that we, we are just regularly talking about them. So at least one part of it is, you, you, if your children are around you all week long, they need to hear repeatedly throughout the week. Uh, with, uh, we will talk about formal times of worship as a family in a moment, but just uh, informally, they need to hear it on your mouth because they need to know it's a real part of your life. This is not nominal Christianity. This is real Christianity. God really saved me when I was in darkness and sin. I am grateful to Him. I am thankful to Him. I, I have joy in the Lord, and they need to see it on your faces, on our faces. They need to hear it from our mouths because we are, we are glad for what the Lord has done. Out of the overflow of our heart, our mouth speaks. So whatever really is brewing in our heart will come out of our mouths, and that ought to be about the Lord Jesus continually. And I think it's important, uh, you know, what you're saying, like in light of Deuteronomy, it needs to be something where there's a freedom in our homes to talk about God and to talk about the gospel and to talk about the Word um, and not just forcing it into, well, we can only do this when we have our family worship time in the evening. Exactly. Like it needs to be just a, and I, I use the word common, not in a negative way, but like just a, a common way so that if an, an observer were to come into your home, they're going to, sometimes they're going to hear, you know, you're just talking about the day, some, you know, talking about what happened, this, that, and the other things in the world. Um, other times you're going to talk about the Lord. So you're going to be a Bible question come up. Or you're going to say, Hey, this is what the Lord was showing me. Um, you know, and it, I, I think we need to, to not, there, there's kind of two extremes. Um, one we need is one extreme is we feel like we, we have to have every other word come out of our mouth be a scripture quotation. That's not what I think God means. Yeah. The other extreme is, well, I'm never going to take initiative because I don't want to force anything on anybody. So, you know, hopefully at some point somebody will bring something up. It's neither one of those. It's some days you're going to have, um, you'll have a stretch where you're talking about Scripture a whole lot more, you're reading it more, you're asking questions, having discussion. Other times it might not be as much, and you know, your, your big discussion for the day is, well, we read in the Bible as a family, we prayed, um, and all of that. Um, so it's, I, I think we have to be careful of trying to force one or the other 
um, because we, we tend to start judging ourselves by that and say, well, we didn't talk about God for so many minutes today, therefore we're now sinning, we failed God, we failed His... I mean, that's how our minds work, that's how my mind works if I put myself in that trap. Um, there just needs to be a, a freedom to talk about God whenever, and it's okay. It's not weird, it's not awkward, um, and recognizing some days are going to be more intensely leaning towards just discussing deep things and discussing the Lord. Other days, maybe not as much, but that's okay. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Because mm-hmm. otherwise, we get in a, a trap of legalism and we start judging ourselves by our very best days because there's going to be some days where it's just like, man, the kids are asking all the right questions and I explained it just like <laughs> I wanted to. Um, why didn't that happen today? And we start saying, well, if, if, if I can't repeat that day today, then something's wrong. And that's not the mm-hmm. case. That's not real life. Um, I think um, some of you may argue, but I felt like I had the... Uh... The best dad. He providentially was the best dad to raise the three hooligans that the Lord gave him, for sure. He was amazing. And, uh, and we would have devotions uh, with what we called them before we went to bed. Always shut off the TV, never, you know, or whatever was going on. It just, we'd stop. And uh, I never liked them, to be honest. You know, I thought this is, I got to go into perseverance mode. <laughs> uh, at this point, and uh, we would read the daily bread, we'd read the Bible, and, um, and then we'd all bow down and uh, turn around, and bow. so I didn't ever, and then everybody would pray, dad would pray, mom would pray, Randy would pray, I'd pray, Mike would pray, and it would, and uh, I couldn't hear what anybody was praying, because it was muffled, it was, they were bowed down, I bet you they were probably praying for me, but I don't know for sure, but it, I, I do not remember, I cannot remember one thing about devotion, sadly. I don't remember what happened Tuesday either, but I can't remember <laughs> back that far. But I do remember that dad loved the word. Mm-hmm. And that's probably the biggest thing that, yeah. And so dad loved the word. I love my dad. So I love the word. And, and uh, so I think just the consistency of that. And, uh, and it really happened until we were probably old enough to do Devotions on our own, and um, and it was it was a thing I wouldn't trade for anything. And you know that the word didn't return void, even though I can't remember the individual ones. It was it was taking great root in my heart. So it was a it was a great thing that uh, and Dad just was very purposeful about it. Yeah, there there is something to be said about a wisdom there of having the commitment of a daily devotional time as a family. Um, it, it doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be some big ordeal. You know, I think sometimes da- daily devotions with our family, it becomes such an overwhelming thing if you have this elaborate plan that you end up never doing it. You know, you do it three days in a row and then you stop forever. I mean, what we do is very, if you saw it, it would not be attention grabbing. We have three kids under five. We have a children's Bible. We'll, we'll read the, you know, one little excerpt. It takes a few minutes. We'll pray together as a family. It, it's not a long ordeal. It doesn't look dramatic. Uh, Kelly's not quoting Greek words. Okay, that's not what's happening, which is a very basic thing. And then we pray and we, the kids go to bed. But I, there's something for the consistency of it. It's kind of like meals. You, you only remember so many of the meals that you've eaten in your life. There's some like moments at a great restaurant where you'll never forget this meal or this experience with your friends. But how many meals do you actually remember distinctively? 
0.01% of your meals, 0.001%, but, but the meals that you don't remember keep you alive. And there's something to be said for the daily faithfulness of just feeding your children little bits of truth. Well, we're reading about Abraham, and then we're reading about Isaac and Jacob, and the 12 tribes, and Joseph and Egypt, and we're reading about the Exodus for the 10th time. You know, it's just the plagues again. And so, you know, it feels very small, and it, and it is in many ways, but it's the cumulative effect over time, the consistency over time that you, you pray bears fruit uh, as it goes on. But just like Jerry, you said, though, you remember your dad loved the Word. So you'll always remember that. Maybe you didn't get, always get so much out of it, but you remembered that he set that example every day to be faithful. So mm-hmm. that's important. Okay, a couple of questions about being a dad here. What have you learned through being a dad, or you could say parent generally? Uh, what, are so, what are some words of advice on parenting in general? And right with that, how should discipline work with young children? Oh, my goodness. Well, I'll, I'll start off, Please. Um, and I'll wade into this as carefully as I can. Um, thinking of being a dad, of, of being a parent, like, um, I like to talk. If I know I can talk about an issue, I want to belabor it to the um, every last possible nuance and detail. Um, and so I realized, my wife reminded me, graciously, kindly, but often, Greg, they're little kids, they're not you know, in a seminary classroom with you. Um, so, you know, you don't have to, like, go crazy with it. Um, the, the illustration, I think this comes from J.C. Ryle. Um, imagine, uh, I don't have a prop for this because never know, quite know how, what you're going to think about, um, but imagine you have a little cup about like this big. That little cup can only hold so much water. As we grow, the cup gets bigger, and it gets bigger, and it gets bigger. Um, as a dad, I've found it's good to remember that the cup of what I drink in terms of, you know, what I can take in, what I can understand, what I can process is going to be a lot bigger than my kids. And so I should not expect their cup to hold as much as my cup does. Okay. Um, and I need, we need to know our kids well enough to know how much is too much, um, how, you know, what's not enough, but it's only something you'll learn over time. It's not like you're going to have one instance where, okay, now I get it. You, as you talk with your kids, you get to know your kids. You start to realize this is where they're at, and this is about how much they can handle. Um, and so as a, as a dad, as a mom, as a parent, whatever, whatever, whenever you have an influence on somebody younger than you, make sure you know where they are and you don't overwhelm. Because think about what happens if you've got a cup that can hold just about that much and you just keep pouring, what happens? You, you're just wasting. Dilute. A lot of it is going over the sides. It's not staying in there. God expands our ability over time, little bit by little bit, uh, what we can handle, what we can understand, what we can process, what we can, you know, all of that. And so when it comes to kids, I think that's something I've had to learn uh, to, you know, it's been very helpful for me to be succinct um, because I'm not naturally that way. Um, and so that's been really good for me, you know, as a dad. And I think the second thing I would say going with, um, it's not Ephesians, I think it's Colossians. It says, don't provoke your children to anger. Um, our kids will feed off of our attitudes. They will feed mm-hmm. off of our emotions. If we are intense, if we are, you know, hot, um, we fly off the handle, we've got a temper, that's going to provoke, and not just provoke, but train our kids to respond in bad ways to people. Um, And so self-control as a dad has been one of the biggest things for me, um, and I I don't always do it well. By God's grace, I've gotten better and better and better over the years, and I'm going to keep trying to get better but not getting overly angry over little things. 
Um, man, what a difference it makes. If I can keep a cool head, it changes everything in that discussion. If I am too hot, if I am too upset, it upsets the kids, it makes the situation bad, they don't respond, they close off, they don't listen, everybody gets upset, and when they don't listen the way I think they should in that moment, that just makes it worse for me, it makes it, and it's just, mm-hmm. so self-control is absolutely huge, especially for dads, we can set the tempo in the house um, and in the home for uh, how we respond to situations. That's good, Greg. Um, actually, uh, Ephesians does cover that. Oh, it is Ephesians. Uh, six, yeah. six, four, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So twice there, we're told as dads, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. It's the way you discipline, the way you um, teach them, whatever. We can, and the ton- that harshness again, that tone of voice can really provoke. And we've got must be cautious. Remember, in the First Thessalonians two, we looked at a few maybe a month ago now. Paul speaks of the motherly and fatherly aspects. Do you remember this? And it, he says, "The mother." He says, "As a mother, I was like a nursing mother among you, gentle. I was compassionate. I was kind. I shared my life with you as well as the gospel." He called that motherly, as a nursing mother. Then later, he says, "As a father among you, I was exhorting you and encouraging you." And it has much more of a military, you know, like <laughs> exhortation feel. One has more of a compassionate feel. And I think that there are there can be there are strengths and weaknesses to both of those things. But uh, it, it, the husbands are going. To generally struggle more with the temper, it sounds like. That's yes. why Paul points that out. Uh, it is easier for me to be less compassionate and more get your act together. That, that, that's more my temptation as a, as a husband and as a father. Uh, so I think that's why Paul gives that specifically to husbands. Don't be harsh with them. Don't provoke them to anger. Uh, be, be merciful and compassionate uh, in that relationship. So we're simplifying it, but I think we want our, our kids to know that we love the Lord Jesus. We love our spouse and we love them. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the, everything, in the, dis- the way we discipline, in the way we um, go about all of life, if they can come out knowing those three things, then uh, I think they're going to thrive. Yes. Jerry, how, how has being uh, a dad, a parent, how has that shaped you, like in terms of your own sanctification over Ooh. years? Yeah, it's just Should a, I get Ben to tell some stories? Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. Ben has some good stories. <laughs> uh, I, I think that um, it, being a uh, husband and a dad is the greatest joy and the hardest thing, you know, and the most sanctifying. So it's, it's a great joy, but uh, I feel like I, you know, it's, uh, it's ironing, sharpening iron every, every day in that. And so I'm thankful for the good example I had as my, uh, from my dad, but um, sure I've always done a good job of doing it, but you know, that's, the Lord's so gracious and kind of, and I do think that where we failed, Greg, you were good about talking about this, where we failed, where we have lost our cool, or where we haven't done it right. Forgetting what's behind and pressing on toward what's ahead. We can't do anything about yesterday, really, but we can do something about tomorrow to grow and to, and to let the Lord continue to teach us and to, um, uh, and I think really to go to our kids when we have wronged them mm-hmm. and our wife and tell them, I did not handle that right. I was too harsh. I didn't really understand what you were saying, and I'm sorry. I should have listened better. Whatever it is, because uh, we need to model that for them, too. We want them to uh, be, um, confess their sins, and so we need to show them how to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing about parenting, I, I want to mention this. You guys have mostly younger 
children, but you never stop parenting your children. Uh, and then someday you might parent your parents, but you, you never stop parenting your children. So I have a, a, a good, we have a good adult relationship with my kids and, and uh, that's great. I enjoy it. I can encourage them uh, in life, in life decisions. So it, it, it never, never ends. And I think it just gets, keeps getting more and more enjoyable, doesn't it? You know, just as they, as they grow older. So for those of you with little guys, you have a lot to, lot to look forward to. It gets better and better. Well, I think we're almost done. Let's see here. We've got, uh, th- these are all kind of related to what we just said, so I'll just say this last part. Um, so the last two questions, how do you make Jesus known to your children at different ages? And then how does fatherhood change as your children get older? So you've already touched on some of those, but any other thoughts on that? How, how do you make Jesus known to your children at different ages? I think Greg's addressed that some with the, with the cup illustration, which is good. And how does fatherhood change as your children get older? Fred, do you want to speak to that? You just mentioned a little bit. Uh, sure. Uh, just, again, Jerry, I think you, you were the one that mentioned it, but you're, you're, you're in, in life situations that they bring up to me, perhaps, uh, that they're going through out. I remind them of the Lord or that I'm praying for them. And they will say, well, dad, you know, we've just, we, we've witnessed God answer our prayers. Thank you for praying. And, and so uh, back to your Deuteronomy passage, uh, that it's just a reminder that to keep on, keep it on and, and keep the Lord Jesus um, in front of them always. Just this, is, this passage applies to virtually everything, but 2 Corinthians 12, if, if you want to turn there, I'm just going to read this pretty quickly. But 2 Corinthians 12, when Paul speaks about his weaknesses, he says this, uh, verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 12, so to keep me from becoming conceited or proud because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Just an encouragement for all of us, perhaps, no matter what stage of life we're in, no matter where we are, no matter how old we are, young we are, or anywhere in between, whether we're married or single or whatever it may be. The Lord is always going to be putting us into places in our life where we feel our weaknesses and limitations, and that is going to be the Lord's means of reminding us of our need for His sufficient grace, His power. So if you have children, if you don't have children, if you're single, if you're married, if you're engaged, if you're whatever you may be, the Lord has you where you are, and there are going to be particular trials and temptations that come with that stage in life that come perhaps with no other exactly like that stage, and the Lord is showing weakness in that, and He's opening his arms to say, I have the strength and power to support you and to help you in the middle of, of, of that. His grace is always going to be sufficient. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Can I give one advertisement about next week yeah. on sin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, I just think, a vital, if we can have a grasp on the total depravity of man, I am becoming more and more convinced that that is just key to so many things, that we will be better at confessing sin. We will be uh, way more um, open to people and their rebuke of us. A wise man accepts rebuke. And, um, and, I, and so I think next week, if you can read that, that chapter, which I think Grudem does a great job on this, this sin chapter, and uh, really to have a good 
grasp on this, the depravity of man, on what sin does, on God's hatred for sin, on, uh, it will really enhance the gospel when we have a better understanding of sin. It's one of those topics I think it's under, uh, maybe underappreciated. That's good. Papa, can you close us in prayer? Father, thank you for your word. I, I love going to your word. We've been uh, all the way from Deuteronomy to Ephesians to Colossians and Thessalonians. And uh, because as we go to your word for the answers to our questions, we go to your word for our answers to life. And, and, and like Jerry mentioned, the, the, it contains all we need for uh, holiness and godliness. And so that's why we do that. Thank you for the opportunity to be together with these men and to um, share uh, biblical insights into the answers of these questions about raising children in parenthood and, and such. I mean, uh, grave responsibilities uh, the Lord has given us. And, and thank you for your guidance, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.